Hello, hello, hello. All right, go ahead and grab a seat. Thanks for saying hi to someone. Uh, and if you didn't, just thanks for being here. Um, it's quite, uh, hey, Phelan and Courtney, great, great job again. You guys did, did so good. Can you thank them again for, for being up here? That's, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you did great the first gathering. You killed it the second gathering even better. And so just really excited for your group. And, um, you know, I don't know if you're thinking of inviting Abby and I, and, you know, just no pressure. That's fine. You guys, you guys got six couples already in your group. So um, I love what, what you said, though, of life, lifelong friends, of actually investing in relationships now that would, would extend for the rest of your life. is just a, a great, it's a longing we all have, and it's a great vision. So excited for you guys. They're going to be at the welcome table. Um, and, uh, yeah, for, and it's, again, it's young married couples. So if you're uh, an old couple, uh, feel free to join me in being offended at not being invited, and yeah, so thanks, you guys. Hey, uh, my name's Tim. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. It's so good to be with you this morning and to open up scripture. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to walk to the side, and there's on the, some shelves, there's Bibles. We're going to be on, on page 602 in those. If you don't um, have that Bible, that information is not helpful to you at all, um, but we're, we're going to read a few verses in a, in a book uh, called Ezekiel uh, this morning, and uh, so but before we do that, I want to invite you to pray with me, uh, and then we'll, we'll ask God together to, to speak to us and guide us as we, as we look to his word together this morning. So let's pray together. God, we, we declare in this place, in this moment, that you're good, that you love us, that you're the God of, uh, of all people everywhere, of all creation, uh, that you alone decide what is just and right, that you alone are holy and worthy, that you are the God of love, that you've designed us and created us and brought us to life, and you desire to be uh, in relationship with us, that we would know you and, and that you already know us. And so we declare in this place among us as this people that, that you are good and we worship you here. And Holy Spirit, we invite you as we always do to work and to move in this place that you would, you would wake us up, you would help our minds to be sharp and ready to think deeply and to think well, that our hearts would actually be soft and be moldable and guidable by you, that you would convict where you need to convict and that you would heal and comfort where we need to be healed and comforted. And so, spirit work in this time and in this moment. And Jesus, we, we just sang some great, poignant, meaningful words to you and about you, that you are the slain and the risen king, that you gave your life and were executed on a cross and that you conquered death and rose again. And that is the good news that we declare and that shapes our hearts and our minds and our lives. And so in this place, we worship you, Jesus, and desire to know you and to follow you with our lives. And we ask that you would guide us now as we look to your word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. A number of weeks ago, as we started this new year, we, we dove into this series that we're calling The Heart, where Jesus begins his revolution. Uh, and if uh, you haven't been around with us, we, we mean by that is that um, there's a part of us that Jesus starts with that might not be what you assume Jesus wants to start with, or you might not assume that Jesus actually wants to do in our life. And so just to be really clear, uh, Jesus uh, wants to be the king of our lives. That when we say revolution, it means that there's one power coming in and taking over from another power. That there's an, a power overthrow. The thing is, is that Jesus doesn't forcibly do that. He stands at the door, literally, of our lives, of our heart, and, and knocks, and we get to choose whether to invite him in or, or not. 
But Jesus wants to be in the seat of, of power. He wants to be your king and savior in our life. And so he starts with our hearts. He doesn't start with how we behave or what we do or what our resume looks like. Or if you could take a video of our entire life, he doesn't look at that and say, this was good enough for me or not good enough. And then choose to, to be with us or to love us based on what we've done or haven't done. That's just simply not who Jesus is or how he relates to us, that he sees us and he loves us and he extends grace to us. And so when it says that he begins with our heart is, is where he starts his revolution, it's the very core of who we are. And so we've been looking at what, what the Bible has to say about the heart. The Bible isn't talking about the organ in our chest. He's not the Bible, isn't when it says heart, doesn't mean this, this, this human organ that pumps blood to the rest of our body. The ancients knew that there was something going on in the chest that kept the body alive. But when scripture talks about the heart, it means the very core of who we are. It's talking about our identity, that we understand that there's something more true of who we are than our, our organ of, of the heart that pumps blood to our body. The core of who we are, and that involves a few key things about us. One of those is that our heart, our identity, is largely shaped by our desire by the things that we want. Jesus turns and looks at his first followers, these first guys that were following behind him, and as a rabbi, as a teacher, he turned around and looked at him, and he says, what is it that you want? First, first conversation he has with them, first words he speaks directly to them in a personal conversation, what is it that you want? And they're set back on their heels, and they think, well, that's not a normal thing for a rabbi to say. But what Jesus was doing was he was looking into the core of who they are and saying, are you aware of what you want? Our wants and our desires shape our lives more than anything else. We choose what we want to love, what we worship, who we want to become. Our desires shape us more than anything else. The other part of our heart is our will. Our will. Let me say it this way. We each have a will, and that is our personal power to make decisions and to do things, to act and to move in this world. Our will. And so our desire and our will are key parts of our heart, and those are things that Jesus actually wants to be in control of. He wants to heal them, he wants to bring them to life, but he wants to be the center of and the director of those things. That's a big ask. Jesus is after all of who we are, not just what we can do for him in the external, but the very core of who we are. Today I wanna, I wanna look at a key text in, in an Old Testament book um, that is actually really shaping for how we think about how our hearts are shaped and changed. We've asked a question a couple weeks ago about how our hearts change, and we've, we've started to step into that. And before we go any further about our role in that, we need to first stop and make sure we're really clear on God's role on how our hearts are shaped and changed. And so we're going to go to page 602, if you've got that Bible, but it's in the book of Ezekiel. And it's actually a phrase in Ezekiel that, that might, might sound familiar, even if you don't know anything else about the book of Ezekiel. But I want to read a few verses, and then we'll, we'll talk about what they mean and, and how they talk about how... It's God's action in our life that, that shapes us first. So Ezekiel chapter 36, um, if you need a little help, uh, it's right after uh, Lamentations, which is only five chapters, so that might not help a lot. Jeremiah is a, a little bit longer. Isaiah is even longer. Um, it's all, it, Ezekiel's after those, and so um, feel free to fumble along there, pull up on your screen if you don't have it, but I'm gonna read it, and then we're gonna uh, back up and talk about uh, what is happening so significantly in these few verses. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting with verse 24, says this. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from, your, from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I give your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be, my, be your God. You will be my people and I will be your God. God is, is speaking through uh, a prophet named Ezekiel and he's saying, uh, he's saying a lot, but he's saying three really important things in those few verses. Um, and then we'll talk about who the people are and, and how they ended up where they are and why they need to hear this. But this is such, such good news. He says this. He says, I'm, I'm going to bring you home. I mean, I'm going to take you from where you are, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you back home where you belong. I'm going to bring you home. The second thing he says is, I'm going to clean you up. He talks about impurities and idols. He basically says, you're a, you're a mess, you're unclean, and I will clean you up. I will bring you home. I will clean you up. And then he says, and I'll give you a fresh start. And the language that's used there is I will remove a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I'll make your heart new. The very core of who you are, I will recreate into something new. Restore it, heal it, help it, make it new. I'll bring you home. I'll clean you up. I'll make you a new start, a new heart. Those three things. He's talking to uh, his people, the Israelites, and they had been in Israel, um, which obviously that's their name, that's where they belong, but it's the promised land that he, he gave them. And they've, uh, their capital city is Jerusalem, and they've built this gorgeous temple where they've worshiped God, and they've lived in this, this promised land and, and life that God promised them. But Ezekiel is in Babylon, and he's writing to the, to the Israelites that are in Babylon. They're no longer in their home. They've been exiled into to Babylon. If you were here last week, I read a, a couple quotes uh, from a book called Faith for Exiles. Um, it's a great book. I recommend it. The subtitle is, uh, I think it's something like five, five Ways of Following Jesus for a New Generation in a Digital Babylon. And so if you are here last week, we talked about a digital Babylon. And digital, obviously, we were talking about the, the reality of, of just technology and uh, the digital um, realities of our life now that are so different than, than generations before. And, but, but the description of Babylon is helpful because it says it's a different place. It's a different culture. It's a different land than the one we were created for. And so when we say digital Babylon, we're talking about the, the impact of, of technology on a different culture other than the one that God's calling us to embody and live and be in and create for ourselves. And it comes from this story, which we reviewed last week. But the, the Israelites were unfaithful to God, and part of that was they were, were conquered once and then conquered again, and, and a number of them are in exile in the nation of, of Babylon. And in Babylon... God is speaking to his people who have been unfaithful, and he's speaking to them through Ezekiel. And he begins by saying, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to take you from where you are, where you don't want to be. You're in exile, and you long for being at home. And we, we, we get what that's like. We, we know when we've set up our space and we feel at home in it and comfortable in it. I, uh, I'm, it shared this before. This, my, it, it, I'm an introvert. Um, I like being on my own. Um, I also love being here and, and doing this. I feel called to and gifted for that. But uh, given my preference, I would be around a very few number of people. Any introverts in here? Okay, great. And just by the way, thank you for saying hi to other people on Sunday. So, um, 
No, it's a sacrifice and it's really stretching and we're getting so good at it. Um, extroverts are just so talented in, in different ways, but I love being at home and I know when I feel peaceful and restful at home. I, we, we, uh, middle son just went away to college. Uh, Max is in uh, Long Beach State in Southern California and um, we've got a little more room in our house and I got, I got an office space. So I have now office space at home and I got to kind of create it and, and design it and, and set it all up how I wanted, um, and then because it's not just me, I'm, I'm one with another person, Abby. She came in and fixed it all and made it what it should be like, and so um, now I can really be at home, and, and so I go in there and I sit, and, and it, was, it was not hard. It was not hard to do that. Like we quick trip to Ikea, moved some stuff around. Uh, apparently I, there was a lot of stuff in there I didn't need in there, that's all now good to Goodwill, and so it's, it's now homey, and I, I like to sit in there by myself and, and read, and I, I feel at home, but, but that's not enough. I, for me to be at home, I actually need to be with other people, and so I, I, need, I want my family around. I want close friends around. I know what it's like to be with, with my people, so to speak, and to be a part of a church family is to be at home in another sense, to have a community of people, and we don't all know each other, but we all are on the same team, and we're pursuing Jesus together, and that's a sense of being home, but I, I know where I belong, and it's with people, and and they felt that. They were in Babylon, exiled, away from their land with some of their people, but not with others of their people. And God says, I'm gonna bring you home, but I'm not just gonna put you in your space that you know. I'm not just gonna put you with your people that you belong, but I'm actually gonna bring you back to the one that you belong to. And when the Bible talks about not being at home or being lost, what it's talking about is not being connected to the one that created us and to the one to whom we ultimately belong. And that's Jesus. And so what God is saying here and what God is saying later in the New Testament is that I'm going to bring you home to the one that you belong to. And, and that's in relationship with me. And he says, I am going to do that. You're not going to do it. You can't pack your stuff up, pick yourselves up, and find your way back to Jerusalem or to Israel. You can't do that on your own. You need some help, and I'm going to do that. God says, I will bring you home to where you belong. The reason that they're in Babylon gets to the next thing that Jesus, that God says he's gonna do here when he says, I'm gonna clean you. Um, I, I uh, actually, in my, in my office, I'm enjoying a, a new rhythm. I'm getting up really early and I'm, I'm reading um, every morning and uh, I'm reading a gift that my mom got me for, for Christmas. My mom got me uh, a Bible for Christmas. I have a Bible, um, but I did ask for this one. And um, I'm very grateful to my parents. I've shared this before, but my mom and dad um, still love each other and love Jesus. And I don't think I have any friends that I grew up with that that's true of. And so I'm extremely grateful for my parents. Um, I'm also grateful that my mom is a nerd and will buy me books whenever I ask for them. And I asked for this new kind of Bible, uh, not like an updated, like there's new info, not like that, but like a new kind that I've never had before, which is called a narrative Bible. And if you, if you don't know what that is, it's a, it's a different reading experience than if I can just say this, kind of a, a normal Bible. Um, when you look at a, a normal Bible, there's typically two columns and there's section headings and then there's uh, chapters, big numbers, and then as you're reading through, there's numbers every you know, other sentence or so. Those are verses, right? We, you know, most of us are familiar with that. That's what a normal reading experience is like. This is, this is different in that it's just, uh, all the numbers in the section title are gone and it's just reading kind of like a normal book. And then another thing is it doesn't have is these are really like, uh, these are like special pages 
they're super thin, right? If you've got a, a normal Bible, if you just read on screen, you don't have this experience. But this is like, like a tissue paper, like special, and it's printed on. And the words are holy and true and, and right, but the paper is just really thin. And it's just a different reading experience than other books. And so what I've found is that reading this book is a whole different experience. I'm actually immersed in it in a, in a different way because I'm not distracted by the titles or the numbers. I'm just reading it as a story. And it's great. I, I started it in, in January 1st on, um, in, in Genesis and decided I'm going to try to read through in a year. And it's also because it's, it's real. It's not thin pages. It's real pages. It's not one, one book. It's actually four it's a set of four, and um, that it looks extra long. But I'm I'm trying to read through in a year. I've never done that before. Never read through straight through in a, in a year. I started with Genesis. Uh, I've now gotten through Joshua, and I'm about to start Judges, which means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah. That's some tough sledding. It's it's tough. A number of you have started and said, I'm gonna read through the Bible in a year and you get to Leviticus and you're like, this was a mistake. Um, and I feel your pain and um, I felt it like the third week of, fourth week of January and it was really, really tough. Um, and I, I pushed through and it's, so it's doable. I'm not the first one to do it. I, you know, I don't want you to think that I am. Others have read the whole book of Leviticus before. In Leviticus and then also in Deuteronomy, over and over and over are these detailed instructions and descriptions of how God's people, the nation of Israel, the Israelite people, brought them out of slavery and he was with them through the desert and into the land and Moses has given the people these instructions that God has given him for how to worship him. And again, Leviticus is tough. It's all these specific instructions and rules and details, and it goes through all of these things. And, and over and over, and what it's trying to do is it's trying to help the people understand how holy God is. Deuteronomy repeated over and over and over again of these, these ways to engage in worshiping God. And what it is is it's this, these specific des descriptions of how they're to be. And if you've not read it before, it, the thing that struck me as I read through it this time was how much blood was involved. There's just a lot of killing of animals. There's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of offering of food and of grains and, and all these details. And it, it's striking if you just read it straight through. It's difficult and it's, why all these details? And the reason is, is because this people, if I could say it this way, this tribe of people was to look different than any other tribe that existed that all people would be able to see this people and see they are different, there's something different about them. They behave and their ways of handling what they possess is utterly different than anybody else around them. And it's all meant to point to how holy and faithful their God is. And it's all there in front of them. They've got it written in stone. They know all the descriptions. And what they've done over and over, for weeks at a time, for months at a time, for years at a time, and then for generations, what they have done is failed to honor and worship God and to obey him. And instead of following what he's given them, they've turned and they've gone in a completely other direction. And they've found other gods that don't really exist, they're called idols, but to worship them. They've forgotten the worship of God and they've gone and come up with their own ideas about how to live and to manage their flocks and their harvests and their lands and their families. They've lived in a different direction. They've disobeyed God, they've dishonored God. 
They've defamed him when he's trying to make himself known through them. And so what happens to them is that they're taken from their land, not all of them, but many of them, and they're exiled to another land. They've been unfaithful to God, and part of that is exile. And so they're in exile. They've been unfaithful to God. They've almost forgotten who he is or that he exists. And God says this to them, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And when he's describing sprinkling them with water, it's reaching back into Leviticus and into Deuteronomy and, and saying, do you know what it's like to clean something to offer it to me in worship, to make it pure? He says, I'm going to do that with you. I'm going to clean you. You can't clean yourselves. You can't get yourselves right. You can't earn back what has been lost through your unfaithfulness. You can't pick yourselves up and get yourselves back to the land and to Jerusalem. I will do that for you, and I will make you clean. I will sprinkle you and make you clean. You can't do it on your own. You and I know what it's like to feel unclean. And maybe you wouldn't use those terms before. But you and I know what it's like to feel dirty and shameful and unworthy and wrong. And, and God says to us, I will make you clean. I will sprinkle you with water, not literal water, but I will sprinkle you and make you clean. As we get into the New Testament and we see the faithful God that sends his son as the Messiah and that Jesus Christ shows up and is crucified on a cross, buried in a grave and then risen again, we have the good news about how we're made clean. And it's by the grace of God through his offer of his son that we're cleaned in a way that we can't clean ourselves. And when we try to clean ourselves and when we try to do good enough and we try to overcome any kind of impurities or when our own heart has gone astray to other idols and other ways of living, that God says, I will come and make you clean. You can't do it yourself. And when you do try to do it yourself, Jesus says to us, whoa, and as I say that out loud, he's not saying, whoa, like I'm so impressed with your effort, like W-O-A-H, like whoa. No, Jesus is saying, whoa, stop, danger, beware. And he says it to some guys known as the Pharisees, and Jesus says this to some Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and following. He says, whoa, W-O-E, danger, beware, hold on, whoa, to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, and that's never good. When Jesus calls you a hypocrite, not a good thing. And he goes on and he says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And Jesus says, the Pharisees look good on the outside, but on the inside I can see their heart, greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of First clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will also be clean. The inside is more important. The heart is more important. What's going on, on the inside? Who you are, your identity, your desires, and your will. That's what matters, and you can't do it yourself. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. 
know Jesus' volume or tone of his voice at that moment. But he's saying to a group of men who are standing up in front of other people and saying, I'm the example of who you are to be, knowing full well that nobody else could live that way that they were living, including themselves. And Jesus is calling them out and saying, you're hypocrites. You're play acting. It's not really who you are. You're following some rules and talking in some kind of voice in front of other people and dressing up and looking good on the outside, but on the inside, you're all messed up. Greed, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, wickedness. He cuts right through it and says, this is what's going on. He says, you can't do it on your own. You can't make yourself clean. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs, which is kind of fascinating. I don't know, we don't, I mean, they buried people very differently than we bury now. We mostly, you know, cremation or, or we dig a hole and bury somebody in a, in a really expensive box. And then they would carve out kind of in the side of a hill, they'd find a rock and, and carve out enough to, to to tuck somebody in there and to bury them and to cover it up with a stone. And Jesus was buried in, in one like that, but it was, a, it was a high-end one that Jesus was buried in. But um, many people were buried that way. The Jewish people couldn't be, the Israelites couldn't be around or near dead bodies. They had to stay away from them. And, and, and in that day and age, they would, um, when the rains would come, they would cover over the, the tombs and, and they would just look like rocks. You wouldn't be able to tell that they were tombs. And, and during the, the time of Passover in a, in a given year, um, Jews from all over the nation would come into Jerusalem. And as they traveled toward Jerusalem, they would be walking along the road and, and if they didn't know that that was a tomb, they would come too close to it on the road and become ceremonially unclean, which means they couldn't practice the Passover as they were looking forward to with their people in Jerusalem. And so they would go around the area around Jerusalem, around the roads, and they would paint them white and it would improve them and they would look better but they would also warn people to stay away from that. Don't go near that because it's dead inside. Stay away from that so you don't become impure and unclean. And Jesus is looking at these religious leaders, these Pharisees, and says, stay away from them. They're impure. They're unclean. They're lying to you. They're leading you astray. They're sharing news with you that is not good news, but is legalistic and religious and harsh and not hopeful and not full of grace. And so stay away from them. You can't clean yourself, and when we do, when we make effort to that, when we start at the beginning of a good year and we say, Jesus, look how good I'm gonna do. I'm gonna live this way. There's part of that that is, there's, there's good mixed up in that, but if it's not completely motivated by, and the starting place isn't, I'm gonna live in response to the grace of Jesus in my life, we so quickly get off track. And the shame that we thought we were gonna avoid, we find again. And the guilt that we don't want to walk into, we stumble into again. And the self-loathing and the self-disappointment that we feel just boils up and takes deeper root in our own lives. And God says, I will make you clean. I will sprinkle you with clean water. You'll be clean for me. We'll be together. Baptism is a great example of this. This is uh, uh, seven weeks from now. We'll gather together on Resurrection Sunday. We're going to do Holy Week this year with Palm Sunday and uh, Good Friday and, and uh, Resurrection Sunday and, and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together. And when we do that, we, we have people get baptized who have said, I'm following Jesus. And baptism is, is a sense of being dead and coming to life. And baptism is such a great example of that that you, 
I've not seen anybody ever be able to, to lean back and with their own quad muscles bring themselves back up out of the water. It's somebody else doing it. It's a symbolic act of, we can't do this on our own and we're being clean as we into the water. It's symbolic. It's, there's nothing especially unique about the molecules in the water. It's a symbolic act of we were dead and Jesus, by his grace, brought us back to life. It's a great picture. Some of us in this room will get baptized in seven weeks from now because we said, Jesus has done this work in my life. and I want to take part in this act and celebrate with my people, with my family. It's a great day. But God is saying, I will do this in you. You cannot do it on your own. And then he goes on and he says this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you. He says, I will do this. I will remove from you a heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will remove from you a heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. It's a simple, simple picture. There's a heart of stone in each of us. And God says, I want to take that out and I want to put in a heart of flesh. I want to make a trade. I want to replace it. The picture is this, a, a stone which if you could reach into your own heart and pull out a stone, like that's not uh, kind of like, kind of be disappointing, right? Like, oh, bummer. Um, or a heart of flesh, like a, like a, a live, well, beating heart's kind of gross, but you get the picture. One's dead, one's alive, one's hard. You, you, you touch it and, and it doesn't move, it's, it hurts. It doesn't, it, it's unresponsive, it's stiff. Touch a heart of flesh and there's a sense that it's, it's soft. It, it can actually be, be wounded. A heart of stone can't be wounded anymore. We understand that when you say, I'm, I feel dead inside, we understand that, that that doesn't just happen. There's some kind of pain, disappointment, betrayal, assault that causes it to be dead to callous itself into stone and to be unresponsive and insensitive. But it can't be hurt anymore because it's already dead. In a heart of flesh, there's a sense of vulnerability, but it's also alive. And it's able to feel and it's able to enjoy and it's able to delight. Heart of stone isn't meant to play well with others. It doesn't, doesn't go well. You put them together, the heart of flesh is going to be hurt. It's meant to be with others. It's meant to connect. It's meant to be alive with others that are alive. And God says, I'm going to take this out and I'm going to put in a heart that is beating and alive and sensitive and responsive and capable of enjoying me and everything else I have for you in life. I, uh, when I mow the lawn, I, I do some of my best self-reflection and talking to Jesus. Um, when it rains, I get to avoid some of that self-reflection. It was sunny this weekend. I did some lawn mowing and self-reflection. And this is what I, this is what I was drawn to. What's, where is my heart not a heart of flesh, and where has it become, not a stone, but where is it, if I were to turn it around and look at it, where is it becoming a little calloused, a little self-protective? 
And God kept bringing to mind a, a friend of mine that we're, we're, this friend and I aren't doing well right now. And the reason is, is because uh, he lied to me and hurt me. And we've got a little distance between us right now. And um, I realized as I was mowing the lawn that my thoughts of my friend um, were tremendously judgmental, um, very self-righteous on my part, and that I had rewritten a story and created a narrative about him that isn't totally true. It's my view of him because of my own hurt and disappointment. And I realized that I had worn that one part of my heart over and over and over again and calloused it towards him so that I wouldn't feel any more hurt. And because it was sunny and I was doing this self-reflection, I realized that I'm at a point of saying, God, I'm either gonna continue to keep that callous to protect myself and think less of him and keep distance from him, or I'm gonna say, I need your help in helping to remove that callous and, and make it vulnerable again, but make it sensitive again and make it alive again and make it yours again because that part of it's becoming mine. And so, God, I don't know what this looks like. I'm a mix of anger and hurt and I'm all twisted up about it, but I'm gonna give you this mess of this part of my heart and I'm gonna trust you to, to heal it. And as I do that, I, I do that with a sense of, I think this is gonna be uncomfortable. And so I just need to tell you that too. There are some of us in here right now that, that have a heart of stone because we've rejected Jesus or because we've come maybe really, really close to him but have said, I'm not gonna trust you. I'm gonna hold back. And you have an opportunity to say, God, take that heart of stone out of me. We looked at a verse last week where 1 Corinthians chapter two, verse, verse two, I think it is, where Paul says, I resolved to know nothing when I was among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That Jesus is the one that makes us pure. And Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, this well, well-quoted, necessary, needed, hopeful verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here, that we've been made new. And that if you've rejected Jesus up into this point of your life, whether you're very, very far away or very, very close and have not yet said, Jesus, have my heart, I confess I need you, I trust you, as Romans 10 says, Confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We're made new, we're saved, we're redeemed. Others of us don't have a heart of stone, but we have a heart that's got some calluses around it at certain places because we've been hurt. And there's a point of being self-protective and then there's a part of being unfeeling on our way to that part of our heart being dead. And I want to invite you this morning just to simply do that, to say, God, here's my heart. And I don't know all the places that it's calloused, but here's one place in my heart that's callous that I'm resisting, relinquishing it to you. 
that I'm starting, instead of honoring you with my life, I'm starting to go in a different direction and find my own idol in my own way. And that we bring that before him this morning and say, have my heart. God says this, I wanna bring you home to be with me. I'm gonna do the work of cleaning you up and making you pure. And I'm gonna give you a fresh start and I'm gonna make you new. Here's what I wanna invite you to do right now. I wanna close your eyes with me. In a moment, we're gonna sing. But we're gonna invite ourselves to this table in front of us this morning. Bread represents Christ's body broken, the juice represents his blood shed. And as we come, we say, Jesus has paid the price for my brokenness and my sin. And Jesus has paid the price to make me clean and to bring me home and to give me a fresh start. And so even by walking forward and picking up a piece of bread and dipping it in the juice and tasting it and chewing it and swallowing it, we remember that Christ is our rescuer, Christ is our redeemer, that we resolve to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified, that that is our starting point, that that is our hope, that that is how our hearts begin to change, not on our own discipline or will or even desire, but it's that God offers to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And so Jesus, as your people, we come, as your daughters and sons, we walk to your table and we receive what is freely offered that was so costly to you. We receive your grace and your forgiveness and your invitation to start anew, to start fresh. And so Jesus, we worship you in this place and we declare you as our, our slain and our risen king.